reminded how many people contribute to making a Sunday morning worship service uh, go smoothly, uh, whether it be the people that set out the communion cups or uh, clean the building or click the buttons to advance the song slides. Um, they all uh, contribute to us being able to worship God, and uh, we appreciate each of them for that role. Or leading the singing, Steve. <coughs> so. <laughs> So it's good to, good to have everybody here and uh, appreciate your, your presence. And uh, we, have, we have touched wood, um, you know, had good Sundays in terms of weather. We haven't had to cancel services for weather this year. We, uh, we have the system set up that it'll be on your television, you know, church service canceled, but we haven't uh, needed to do that, even though some Saturdays have been uh, pretty pretty fierce, so uh, that's been a, a good thing for us. I, I don't know if you noticed when we read uh, Psalm 27 there, and uh, one, of the, one of the lines there, it says, um, though in verse 3, though an army besiege me, my heart shall not fear, though war break out against me, even then I will be confident. I don't know about you. But as I go through Psalms and I read things like that in light of what's going on in Ukraine, all of a sudden I'm like, that sounded a lot better when I didn't have war on my television. Like it was a lot easier to be confident in the goodness of God in the face of that sort of violence uh, when it was hypothetical. And, uh, and so it just is a reality check and... Uh, uh, I, I think I mentioned last week, you know, the Christian Chronicle is doing a good job if you find that website of uh, just sharing stories of Christians in Ukraine, whether they, uh, how the churches are, are still uh, struggling or as they're scattering to different places, and uh, it, it's worth checking that out to see what faith does look like under fire, literally. We continue our sermon series today uh, based uh, of conversations with women of the Bible. As I've said each week, we're not reading a whole lot of uh, scripture uh, as I kind of summarize the, the story so we can get through the material, but I do encourage you to be part of our growth groups where we dig in a little deeper into uh, the text and consider the ramifications for us. And uh, we have the growth groups are on Zoom at the moment. Uh, we're doing them online at uh, 5 o'clock uh, this evening or 7 o'clock on Tuesday. And uh, we'll be happy to share that, that link with you if you would like to join. But this week, as we sit on the buddy bench, we're not going to listen to the specific conversation of the two women who are sitting there. We will uh, give, respect them and uh, give them some distance. But I would like to tell you the stories of these women and how they came to be there. The two women on the buddy bench today are both prostitutes. And yet they made it into the Bible. One is Jewish. The other is Canaanite. One serves as an inspiration to Israel. And the other represents a warning to God's people. They lived about 700 years apart, and God used 
both of them. So let me tell you about the first, and maybe you'll recognize her. She lived approximately 1,400 years before Jesus. Her reputation as a prostitute was well known within the community. In fact, you could barely say her name without also saying her profession. She was Rahab the harlot. That name. That name labels her, doesn't it? It would seem to label her as the villain in the story. How could a room full of righteous Christian people cheer for someone in that business? On the other hand, the other characters in the story are God's people. They are the Israelites. They are the people that God has brought out of Egypt, has carried through the wilderness, has walked them up to the edge of the promised land as they're ready to cross the Jordan and is about to give them this land that they have dreamed of for centuries. The two in particular that we focus on have been entrusted by Joshua himself to spy out the land, to scope it out, to to look for weaknesses, to, to come back and report to the whole nation that God is going to give them the land, the opportunities that lie ahead of them. They must be the heroes of the story. Surely they're the ones that we're cheering for. But a funny thing happens when we actually read the story. The two Israelite spies turn out to be not very good spies. And perhaps not very good men. We find Rahab's story in Joshua chapter 2. And I don't have any slides this morning, so you, you may like to just go there and uh, scan, the, scan the text. But if you notice the very first verse of Joshua chapter 2, it says that he secretly sent two spies. Well, if they're spies, you kind of have to do it secretly, don't you? That, that goes with the business. And he says, go and look over the land, especially Jericho. And so go and look and, and scope it out and, and, and let us know what you, what you see. You're on a mission from God. Okay. Come back and report. Now Joshua himself had experience at this. You might remember 40 years earlier, Joshua and Caleb had themselves been spies in the land who had come back and reported and said, we can take this land. But the other ten had said, no, it's too, too uh, the cities are too strong, the people are too giants, we've got no chance. And so they spent 40 years wandering in the wilderness. Well, this time Joshua sends two spies. Presumably they're people that he trusted. But no sooner has he sent the spies then by the end of the verse, they've entered the house of a prostitute named Rahab. Now, if we didn't have preconceived ideas about who these men were, or the character of these men, 
we would assume that they visited Rahab for the same reason every other man visited Rahab. Away from the prying eyes of their family and neighbors, on a top secret mission for God, amongst a pagan people, they decided to have a little fun on their mission. So it's quite possible that they were not good men. Apparently, they also weren't good spies. Because no sooner did they enter Jericho than someone told the king that Israelite spies were in the city. Not only did they say that they were in the city, they said they're at the house of Rahab, the harlot. That's two strikes, isn't it? So the king sends his soldiers to knock on Rahab's door. And at this point, we're forced to reconsider our impressions of Rahab. Because she hides the spies. She misdirects the Jericho soldiers. And then... She speaks to the spies in a way that really we would expect the spies to be speaking to her. In verse 11, she concludes her her talk having stated about the power of God and and how people um, are fearful of the approaching Israelites. And, And she finishes up verse 11 of Joshua 2. She says, For the Lord your God is God in heaven above and on earth below. A very Israelite confession as to who Yahweh is. That he fills the cosmos. That he's not just the God of the river or the God of the ocean or the God of the mountain or the God of the city. That he is the God who fills the heaven and the earth. But it is Rahab who is reminding the Israelite spies who their God is. And it's as though the storyteller that wrote the book of Joshua has set everything up for this moment, for this royal reversal, that the the Israelite spies are worse than we expect. And Rahab the Canaanite, is found confessing Yahweh. And she protects them, not because of who they are, because she may well be aware up close and personal exactly who they are. But she protects them because of who their God is. Well, the spies, having been confronted by their own infidelity, and their own unfaithfulness, promise Rahab her own personal Passover moment. One of the things that's, that's interesting, I, I do wish I had a slide for this, but I don't, uh, is, is that we often are able to draw the connection between Israel crossing the Jordan and, and God making a path across the Jordan as he made a, a path through the, the sea when they come out of Egypt. Uh, and we can draw that sort of comparison between the two. Uh, we're going to see an, um, uh, strong nations being destroyed 
by God. Miracles, just as Egypt was destroyed by God's miracles. But here we see the, the spies, they tell Rahab that um, she's to gather her family. Okay? When, when Israel is about to attack Jericho, gather your family. Similar to what the Israelites were told to do the night of the first Passover in Egypt. Get your family in the house. And then instead, in Egypt, they were told to put the blood of a lamb around the door. And, and instead of the blood of a lamb around the door, the spies told Rahab, they say, do this. Hang a scarlet cord out your window. The same scarlet cord that they have climbed out to escape the city. Hang that out your window. And when the city is destroyed, you will be protected. And so God gives Rahab her own personal Passover, in a sense. The destruction passed over her and her household. She does this. She follows the instructions. And in chapter 6 and verse 25 of Joshua, we read how she survives the destruction of the city and then she lives among the Israelites to this day whenever the, um, the book was written or this part of the book was written. She lives among the Israelites. She doesn't just get to escape to another city, to a smaller town. She, she doesn't um, you know, live on the outskirts or in shame. She becomes one of the Israelites. She experiences God's grace and acceptance in her life. Now the second woman sitting on the buddy bench lives about 700 years after Rahab, 700 years approximately before Jesus. Neither of the Israelite kingdoms have been taken into captivity. But the northern kingdom has been walking away from God. They've been worshipping Baals, they've been worshipping other false gods, and Assyria is approaching. It's going to take the northern kingdom of Samaria. The people will be taken into captivity. God regarded Israel as an unfaithful wife at this point. He'd married Israel at Sinai, but her dalliances with other gods had reached a breaking point. And so God told his prophet Hosea, in Hosea chapter 1, verses 2 and 3, he says, go and marry a promiscuous woman. Now it's not clear whether she was promiscuous before he married her, or it was something that in retrospect, it was go marry this woman, and then she turned out to be promiscuous. It doesn't matter a whole lot. But he's to go and, and marry this woman and start a family with her. And so Hosea marries Gomer. I don't know how he selected her. We're not told that. But together they have a son. Before long, she has two more children. Unlike the first child, we're not told that these other two children are children of Hosea. In fact, chapter 2 would seem to indicate 
that he knew that they were not his children. As I said, I, I don't really know how this all happened at the beginning. There was a marriage with low expectations. In fact, in many ways, it seems cruel to Hosea and to Gomer, doesn't it? That God would say, marry someone who's not going to be committed to the marriage. Why would you put yourself through that? But the relationship between Hosea and Gomer reveals God's relationship with Israel. You see, when we don't have that visual reference between God and us, between God and Israel, we go, oh, God will get over it. He's, he's big enough. Yeah. I can do this. I can do that. People can do this. God will get over it. He's seen it all before. He's a tough guy. But what he does with Hosea and Gomer, he says, look, you can relate to the pain that this couple is going through and the hurt that they're experiencing and that they're giving to each other. And he says, that, that is how I feel in my relationship with you, Israel. Chapter 2 Hosea graphically describes in the first half God's righteous anger towards Israel. And we know that, that Israel is going to be taken into captivity. They're going to be destroyed. There's no, no avoiding that. It's going to happen. But then the tone changes. We might say that God repents in the second half, starting in verse 14. And, and he says, okay, now that, that that has happened, now that the consequences of your actions have been played out, now we're going to start over. I'm going to, to attempt to woo you back, to allure you, to, to entice you back into relationship with me, Israel. Because I still love you. I still care for you. And I still want relationship with you. Meanwhile, somewhere in chapter 2, Gomer apparently leaves Hosea. Whether of her own volition or whether she was sent away, we're not told. It's interesting at this point to note, we read from uh, John earlier, and uh, we were reminded that the penalty in the law for adultery is to be stoned, right? to be killed, to be executed. But that's not what happens here. And so she leaves and uh, is living with another man as chapter 3 begins. Because just as God has softened and enticed Israel back, so Hosea goes to find Gomer. And God's instructions to Hosea are intimidating. At the very beginning, he just says, go and marry a promiscuous woman. But now in chapter 3, 
He says, go, show your love to your wife again. Though she is loved by another man and is an adulteress. He could have just said, go get back your property. Go and reclaim her. Go rescue her. Go return her to the place where she belongs. But instead he says, go and show your love for her. More specifically, he says, love her as the Lord loves the Israelites, even though they turn to other gods and love the sacred raisin cakes. And so we have this comparison between God and Hosea who who go to a people, go to a person who is committing adultery and come to them and say, I love you, I want you back. I'll pay the price that it takes to bring you back to me. Meanwhile, those people are loving, and then here we see the different degrees of that word love, don't we? Are loving a a false god, a false husband, and the sacred raisin cakes. Now, they must be pretty good raisin cakes to get a mention like that, right? So they're sacred. They're somehow involved in the idol worship um, is, is why they're given that description. Perhaps they're part of a particular festival. We don't really know the details. But God's love is so much greater than the love that a person might have for even a sacred raisin cake. And so in verse 3, after uh, we see there that, that there's a condition to her coming back, he says, I'll accept you back, I'll welcome you into my house, I want, to, I want to be your husband again, but I need a display of good faith. And so he says, how about we both commit to celibacy for a period of time? And then presumably, because we're seeing this parallel between Hosea and Gomer, all the way along with God and Israel. In verse 5, we see this reconciliation between God and Israel. The Israelites will return and seek the Lord their God and David their king. We presume then that Gomer does live happily ever after with Hosea. It would kind of destroy the whole story if she then went back to her uh, promiscuous ways. So Gomer was not the type of woman that mothers pointed to as a role model for their daughters. And yet God chose her. God used her, but not in an abusive way. He ultimately redeemed her. And it wasn't simple. It wasn't easy. Her path was a difficult one. And it's difficult for us to to picture, perhaps, her personality, her motivation for her ongoing unfaithfulness to Hosea. But God didn't give up on her. He loved her. It's really interesting to consider how much the life of Gomer matches the story uh, that Jesus told of the prodigal son. And that's where we're going to spend a good deal of time in our growth groups this week. 
It says Rahab and Gomer sit on the bench and as they talk, they have a lot in common. Now they could sit there wallowing in their shame. Rahab as a Canaanite, an outsider, and a prostitute. Gomer as a Jewish, unfaithful wife, worthy of death and also a prostitute. But I suspect that most of their conversation is spent discussing the grace they received from God. Rahab was welcomed into Israel. More than that, according to Matthew 1 verse 5, she was an ancestor of David and ultimately of Jesus. Rahab the Canaanite. Much like a few generations later, Ruth the Moabite. And so we see right here in in the lives of these women, these, these little seeds of God's view of what the kingdom of God should be like. Of how it embraces the nations. And is for all people. Likewise, Gomer became an icon of God's love for Israel while experiencing the forgiveness, grace, and love of her husband, Hosea, on a personal level. And so the lives of Rahab and Gomer should inspire us. They each represent us. Sure, we might view their sinfulness as more public, perhaps more extreme than than ours. But that really is the scandal of grace. That despite the reputation each of these women had, God saw them as something more. And so while Rahab was known as Rahab the harlot, while Gomer was known as Gomer the promiscuous woman, God had other titles and other descriptors for them. What's amazing to me, as I've experienced this in ministry over the years, is how many people with messed up lives don't think they'll be welcome in a church. How many people with messed up lives, think church is the last place that they want to come. The church is a place that will make them feel worse about themselves than they already do. Sometimes it might be something like, well, I don't have good enough clothes because everybody at church wears good clothes. I can't be there. Sometimes it 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 may be, well, I need to fix this. I need to stop that. I need to mend that relationship. I need to change this behavior. I need to, before I can come to church. Now, where do they get that idea? I think they get that idea from the church. I think over hundreds, perhaps thousands of years, that the message, that has been the message of the church. That we're all about good behavior. That if you want to come to the church, you have to behave good. And so when people see that they're not behaving to those standards, 
They say, I can't belong at the church. I think something's gone radically wrong when that's the impression of the church that the people who need the church have. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 and 10. It begins by saying, Do you, do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? And then it goes through and lists several sexual sins, thieves, greedy, drunkards, slanderers, swindlers. And we say, yeah, that makes sense. Those people don't inherit the kingdom of God. There's some bad eggs in there. But then verse 11 says, and that is what some of you were. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. And here's the thing, is that we could sit here and say, oh yeah, I used to be an imperfect person. I used to do this wrong, I used to do that wrong. Okay? But thankfully that's not who I am. But here's, here's what I find interesting, is that the people that Paul is writing to, we say, oh, they, they fall into that category of those with extreme public sins. And yet somehow, they found the church an attractive place to be. They found Christians attractive people to be with. And once they got through that barrier, God was able to uh, undertake his transformative work as Jesus put them through the redemptive car wash, right? They were washed, they were sanctified, they were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. Romans chapter 3, verses 22 and 24 explains there is no difference between Jew and Gentile. I want to suggest we could also say there's no difference between Rahab, Gomer, and ourselves. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and are all justified freely by His grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. When I look at society, one of the things that we notice is how people congregate with people like themselves. Okay? Uh, in churches, we often do this formally. We, may, we, we put our children in children's Bible classes based on age. But in large churches, they'll do it amongst the adults based on stage of life. So you might have a young professionals, a newly married, um, you know, commuter parents um, or taxi parents. Um, maybe there's parents of teens, empty nesters, golden ages. Like pick a name, pick a stage of life. And a large church will have a class for you because we naturally gravitate to people who are like ourselves. It happens in our broader society as we think of places like, say, a Chinatown or a Little Italy where people of different ethnic groups um, settle a place together because they can get the groceries they're familiar with. They can speak the language they're familiar with. Uh, people understand them better. There's less barriers uh, to, to, for, for communication. And, and that is part of the challenge we face as a multi-ethnic church, right? 
is to say we're doing something that in many ways isn't a natural impetus because people like to gather with people like us, like themselves. But when we exist like this, we say, hey, no, look, we're all human. Right? We all have the Spirit of God within us. Right? We're not going to, we refuse to be separated by our skin color. But that doesn't mean that there aren't other ways that we segregate each other. Perhaps by education, perhaps by wealth. Um, they're, they're, they're numerous. We'll find ways. We'll invent new ways of segregating. Right? People would like playing cards together. Right? And, and we become our own groups. Bills fans versus everyone else. I mean, like it, it just happens. But, but, so here's my observation, is that when we look at this church, it lets us know who we think are the people like us. Who we think are the people like us. And then the question is, with Rahab, and Gomer, and any number of other characters from Scripture fit in and be like us? Would we see ourselves in them? It's my hope that God's church is filled with people who are aware of the grace that we have received and who are committed to being a place of grace and transformation. A church that welcomes the Rahabs, the Gomers, that come our way and loves them as God loves them. And maybe not even waiting for them to come our way. Maybe we're a church that goes and looks for them.